0: It's very providential this morning that as we gather together after our service today to celebrate the Lord's Supper and and have a meal together, the, the providence of the Lord has aligned everything quite nicely as I talk this morning from John chapter 12 because our passage centers on a meal that Jesus has right before he enters Jerusalem to go and die on the cross for sin. This is a familiar passage, so if you would turn to Mark, or excuse me, to John chapter 12, um, we're going to see the story of Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus, who anoints Jesus on his way through Bethany to Jerusalem. Now, I would say that this is providential because the Bible talks great, greatly about the need for community. Uh, or if, if you call it old school fellowship, with one another as believers in Christ, and God's Word teaches us that the one of the greatest ways that we can encounter and enjoy community together is through the intimacy of having a meal together. I mean, you can you can recall uh, hopefully great memories in your family and your life where God blessed. Uh, the sitting down at a table together and having a meal with your family, with your friends, with your neighbors, because it is a great time to communicate and to, to share love for one another and to kind of put away the distractions of the world and, and really get to know people and fellowship and communi- uh, communicate with them um, and connect with them one-on-one. Um, our busy society tries to quell such intimate moments Around a meal, but I think the Lord providentially works the process into the organization of the church. I mean, the Lord's Supper in, in the early church was presented in such a way that included a meal because they saw the necessity in a world as exiles in the lostness of the world, they saw the necessity of coming together and enjoying that meal together, oftentimes starting with the Lord's Supper. But just having that fellowship, talking about God's word, praying together, it was one of the foundational uh, elements of their community together. And so meal fellowship is the setting of our passage this morning. Meal fellowship promotes community and not isolation. Meal fellowship promotes intimacy and not superficiality. It also promotes hospitality and not selfishness. And as, as Jesus is uh, finally making it to Jerusalem, he's, he's two miles outside of Jerusalem, and he stops uh, in Bethany. Bethany, he, he's familiar with Bethany. Bethany is where his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live. And he stops there as he's walking into Jerusalem with most likely a large crowd of people who would all travel together to return back to Jerusalem for Passover, and so they're all traveling together, and of course, there's safety in numbers, right? So they're traveling together, and Jesus kind of detours, most likely with his disciples, uh, at the home of, of, uh, of Simon the leper, we're told, to have a meal with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and obviously Simon and, and the disciples. And this meal is a reflection of the intimacy that he has with them and what we're going to see from this meal is a great reflection of the fulfillment of Jesus Christ as he goes into, the, into Jerusalem, he is fulfilling uh, the, the role he has come to fulfill as the Messiah and the Passover lamb. And so we're going to look at three fulfillments today from this passage as Jesus is traveling in uh, to Jerusalem to, to go and to die. All three of these fulfillments reflect his death. All three of them point to how we can uh, live in in light of his sacrificial substitutionary atonement for our sin, and we can rejoice and worship him and and be challenged in um, the the glory and the majesty of that. There's two main characters uh, that interact with Jesus. There's Mary, the sister of Martha, and there's Judas, And we're going to see a great contrast of love and devotion from Mary and hate and and, uh, opposition from Judas. So let me read this, John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and... Lazarus was one of those who were uh, reclining with him at the table, and Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, uh, who, uh, he who was about to betray him, said, "'Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor?' He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. And when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus whom he had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. First of all, we want to look at the importance of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Passover. As I said, the Passover was at hand We see that John tells us that it's six days before the Passover. And one important aspect of the Passover that we have to understand from Scripture is a lot of times in the New Testament, the Passover is referred to an entire eight-day event. Because Passover was one day, and the Feast of the uh, Unleavened Bread was the seven days following. And so oftentimes we would see uh, a, a the mention of the word Passover, and sometimes that's referring to the day of Passover, and oftentimes that's referring to the whole uh, week or festival. And we know that that festival is reflective of the great exodus from Egypt. And God in- instituted the Passover in connection with the Feast of the Unleavened Bread so that the Jews would remember the great salvation that they experienced when God rescued them from Egypt. And it was on that special day, that day uh, before their exit, where God told them to slaughter a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and and, and spread it on the doorpost. And by faith, in doing that thing, in obedience to the word of God, they uh, they would receive salvation from the wrath of God. God's wrath would pass over them. And so imagine... Jesus has traveled from Jericho and he's with this large group of people and this large group of people, they are all going to the Passover a week before because as um, John chapter 11 tells us at the end in verse 55, that the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many people went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover, why? To purify themselves. So that whole year, maybe you came in contact with a dead body or somehow you were defiled, you would go to Jerusalem early. And again, you're traveling with this group and you're going to Jerusalem. Jesus is a part of that group and he stops off in Bethany. But Let's not overlook the fact that this is not just a descriptive sentence in verse one for where Jesus is, but, but John is, is starting the final chapter of his gospel with this passage. This is introducing the Passion Week. This is the weekend before. This is a meal the weekend before with Jesus and his friends, but it's all pointing to the Passover and what Jesus is about to accomplish. John wants us to see as he told us in early on in his gospel where John the Baptist proclaims behold the lamb of the of God who takes away the sins of the world John is giving emphasis to the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of this celebration Jesus is the one who would give his life as the ransom for many and the disciples may not understand this but as the church we have the full canon of scripture The book is closed, the writing's been done, and God is giving us the revelation that we see Jesus as the one who fulfilled the Lamb. I think it's interesting and amazing that on that day in Egypt, as these uh, Jews were, they had been suffering for so long. And they had seen this glimmer of hope and they had come to know that Moses had been sent by God to deliver them from this bondage and this slavery. And it was, it was difficult oppression. And through the miracles and the signs that they experienced, they began to have hope and they began to see the power of God and the, the, the rescue that seemed to be coming for them. And the climax of that was this. Go and kill a lamb and spread the blood on the doorpost. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, we'll do that because, because we believe in this power and we trust in what God's commanded us to do. So we're gonna be faithful to that. And it was that lamb and his blood on the doorpost that was the substitute that, that, that allowed the wrath of God to pass over them, which points us to Jesus. That little lamb was that substitute for them. And allowed the wrath to, uh, to, to pass over. And of course we understand and know that Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7. Jesus was going into Jerusalem during the Passover to become the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Paul says, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And so we may not think about this as much as we should, but it is so important to understand this this long theological word, the substitutionary atonement seen in the Passover. That a lamb who would bear the symbolic sin of the people was slaughtered so that they could receive remission of sins. And in the great prophecy of Isaiah, it was Jesus... The promised Messiah who did what? He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. Jesus becomes the one who is the true substitute. Jesus becomes the one who can actually stand in our place and bear the weight of the wrath of God for us. The wrath of God did not pass over Jesus on our behalf. The wrath of God was placed upon him by his heavenly father as our substitute. And so it's so important for us to see that this glorious uh, sacrificial system that God had instituted, that Jesus was going into the, 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 the city of Jerusalem during one of the most populated times of the year, And how many of those people never understood, as Jesus is dying on the cross, what all that meant. We as the church can see the beauty that Jesus was going into Jerusalem to die for us. As Isaiah says, that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. as Paul tells the Corinthians, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that he became the curse for us, that he lived the perfect life so that we might be free and we might be rescued from the condemnation of God and be justified as though we had never sinned. That's what Jesus Christ did in that atoning sacrifice, that substitutionary sacrifice. And as you read Isaiah 53, if you have maybe that highlighted in your Bible, let me encourage you to circle all the pronouns that reflect in this Old Testament story of what Jesus Christ did for us as his people. He he did not just accomplish them. As I said, he bore our griefs, he carried our sorrows, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity iniquity of us all. And so we praise and glorify him for his sacrifice. But I also want you to consider that as Jesus Christ went into Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Stopping at Bethany, but eventually going into Jerusalem, he was going to willfully die on the cross to fulfill the sovereign plan of God. And Paul says something in 1 Corinthians 15 that's so unique. He says, For I deliver to you as of first importance that what I also received, that Christ died according or for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures. And we're like, yeah, Jesus died because that's what the Bible said. But that's not what that means. When he goes and dies for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, we could say it another way. He died for our sins according to the sovereign plan of God. He was willfully, uh, he was willful and obedient to go to Calvary and be that substitute. That accordance with the scriptures is the full revelation of God that is unfolded for us so that we can see that throughout this whole storyline, God is bringing it all to a climax with Jesus. That's the accordance with the scriptures. That in God's sovereignty, every single element of history is unfolding so that the perfect setup and preparations have been made for Jesus to die. The prophecies of the Old Testament, the events of the Old Testament, the people of the Old Testament, all pointing to this redemptive thread throughout history so that we can give praise to God's sovereign plan of redemption before the foundation of the world. And so in God's sovereign plan, we find great comfort in the passage, God is working all things together, together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, that's what that means. The greatest good that you can ever experience from a sovereign God is his salvation from sin. Your salvation from sin is the greatest good. Yes, you experience a a lot of uh, manifestations of of his goodness in your life, but the greatest good is that he sent his son to die for you. There is no greater college acceptance or the birth of your children or your wonderful marriage or a gift from a family member. Nothing compares to the spiritual reconciliation, justification, adoption, and eventually glorification that you find in Christ Jesus nothing. And so God is working all those things together for your good because you are called according to his purpose and because you love him. Now, church, that should encourage us this morning because so many of us in our lives today, we lose sight and and, and fall into doubt and temptation of, of fear and worry and anxiety. And we think, well, let me step back for a moment and just look at this passage where Jesus is faithfully going in. He's carrying out this plan uh, of the Passover, being the Passover lamb that was set before the foundation of the world, and he's carrying out detail by detail in perfect harmony with in obedience with what god planned and if he's doing that and he dies exactly when god intended him to d- to die and rise from the grave if he's doing all that in perfect harmony like a beautiful symphony then maybe god has control over my life too and if he has control over my life then i don't have reason to worry because god is carrying all those things uh together and he's bringing them together in a symphony in my life for his glory so i don't need to worry I don't need to worry when your family's in the hospital three or four times in one month. I don't need to worry about that. I don't need to worry when your, your mother or your father suddenly die of a disease or, or your children are wayward. I don't need to worry or be afraid because God has brought together the cosmos to reflect his glory, most importantly here on this earth, the glory of his son Jesus and what he accomplished in his sacrifice is death, burial, resurrection. So we need to trust in him. That was just verse one. Jesus is coming to Passover to be the fulfillment of that Festival, feast. But number two, he, we see a fulfillment in his anointing. Just as the Passover points to the death of Christ, so this incident in the home of Simon the leper carried significance for the future sacrifice that Christ made for sinners. Now, we know Mary. Mary is the devoted one, right? And Martha is the worker bee. Mary's the one that sat at the feet of Jesus while Martha was in the kitchen cooking up supper for Jesus. And we don't condemn Martha and we don't condemn Mary. I think Martha learned a great lesson that day in their home. But once again, we see the same expression in Mary that we saw earlier in Luke chapter 10 where Mary expresses her love, her attention, and devotion to the Lord Jesus. And there they are reclining at this table. This is considered in verse two, a dinner. And once again, Martha serving. Lazarus is there reclining at the table. And Mary's about to get her devotion on. She's about to find a way that she can honor the Lord Jesus as she has done previously. Now, something that that we need to understand is is that reclining at the table for this day in culture is basically uh, lying on one arm on, on your side and your feet are kind of pointed away from the table and it's a real short table and your head is toward the table. And and because of the, the, the day and the way the culture was, uh, people would travel and their feet were dirty. And so it was very normal for uh, a, the host of a party or the host of a dinner to provide water and a way for someone to wash their feet before they ate. Because again, you're reclining. Nobody wants to see your stinky, dirty feet. Okay? So... A good hospitable host would say, "Here's some water for you to wash your feet." Matter of fact, in Genesis, we see numerous accounts where Jesus, or where, uh, excuse me, Abraham welcomes the guests, these angels that come and greet him. He offers them, before they eat, an opportunity to wash their feet. And so John is bringing the highlight of this story when Mary comes and washes the feet of Jesus. Now we say anointing because it's a little bit more than washing, but basically she just washes feet. And what's interesting, and, and it's important to note about this passage, is that this same passage is mentioned in Matthew and Mark, but it's placed at, in the, at the end of the Passion Week. So if you hold your place there and just flip over to Mark 14, because Matthew and Mark's accounts are pretty parallel. But I want to point this out to you because as, you, as we go through the Gospels and we're trying to deal with the, uh, the chron- chronology, we want to get the, the whole timeline as, as most accurate as possible with, with just our human minds. So if you're reading the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, You're going to get to verse chapter 14, and you're going to know that you're already into the Passion Week. I mean, Jesus, at at verse 12 of 14, is about to have the Passover with the disciples, the Passover meal. And notice in verse 3, this is where Mark, as well as in Matthew, who does the same thing, he places the anointing of Jesus at Bethany. Now, if you're not paying attention, you're going, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was in Jerusalem. How is he all of a sudden in Bethany? But if you notice in verse 3 of chapter 14, Mark says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at the table. So Matthew and Mark, what they do is they flash back to this story that we're talking about today before Jesus ever enters into Jerusalem. It's a flashback moment. And the reason why is because they want to connect thematically the betrayal of Jesus, or excuse me, the betrayal of Judas, of Jesus, with his comments to Mary. Because Judas, in this passage today, is the one who objects to Mary and her use of this perfume. So Matthew and Mark, they look at it thematically and they say, let's put this this story of Judas right before we state how Judas is the betrayer of Jesus. You guys following? But in, in the chronology of the passage in John, John puts it in the right spot. Jesus has not yet entered Jerusalem. And that's important. It's important Because Mary anoints his body for his burial. Now, I don't think she knows she's doing it. She's just trying to show this great devotion and love for Jesus. But what we're going to see in just a minute is that Jesus sees this act of worship and and gratitude to Mary. And he points out, hey guys, listen, you may object to this. She is just preparing my body for burial, which is pretty significant. But I want to focus for a moment on the custom here. She, there she is. Jesus is there. He's got dirty feet. She wants to honor him, and she takes this uh, this jar. Some say flask. It's a. It's about twelve ounces worth of liquid. And it comes from what the Bible calls uh, an ointment made from pure nard. Nard was a nard plant. It was imported from India, and it was extremely expensive. Judas, who tends to be the guy that knows a lot about money, obviously, he estimates the cost at 300 denarii. That's one year's worth of wages. So take the amount of money that you're going to make this year and go, would I ever buy a jar of perfume that costs this much? And hopefully your answer is no because we are a blue-collar church. A whole year's worth of wages. So in our flesh, we can kind of understand the objection here, right? Wait a minute. You're going to take a whole year's worth of salary and dump it on the body of Jesus. Really? But, but Mary is, she's unashamed. I don't believe that this perfume belonged to someone else. I think that, that Mary and Martha and Lazarus uh, most likely had this, maybe this was an heirloom or, or something to that degree. We don't really uh, see much evidence that they are very wealthy people, they could be. But regardless, the value of this perfume reminds us very emphatically of the sacrifice that Mary is willing to make to worship the Lord Jesus. I mean, what a great sacrifice that she was making for her Lord in response to or foreshadowing the sacrifice that he would make for her on the cross. She wasn't distracted by the cooking. She wasn't uh, engaged in the preparation of the meal. She wanted to sit at the feet of Jesus uh, when he entered her home. And now she wants to honor him by washing his feet. Matthew and Mark say that she anoints his head. And I think we can imagine that both happened. That with 12 ounces of liquid, expensive perfume she was pouring it on his head pouring it on his feet But we could say in a sense that she was like uh, David when the Ark of the Covenant came in and he danced before the people and, he, and the Bible proclaimed that he was undignified. He could care less because he was so in, 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 uh, engaged with the worship and the praise of the Lord from, for the Ark coming back uh, into his possession and the possession of Israel. In the same way, Mary is undignified. She is willing to, whatever the cost, to worship her Lord in this way. And secondly, not only does she use this perfume, she lets down her hair, which a woman would never do in this custom. It would be undignified for her to do that because it would seem like she was uh, immoral or, 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 you know, engaging inappropriately in a sense or portraying herself inappropriately to let down her hair, she didn't care. She didn't care what society thought of her. She lowers her hair down. She takes her hair, which assuming is extremely long, and she wipes the feet of Jesus. I, I don't know that we could demonstrate a more humble act from someone toward the Lord Jesus, besides wiping his dirty, nasty feet with a year's worth of salary of perfume. It's an amazing act of worship. And I think from that, we can really challenge ourselves and ask ourselves, what does our uh, walk with Christ and our love for him and our devotion for him, what does that do to the value of things of this world? do we elevate our love for Christ, do we elevate our, our devotion to him with our time and our resources, regardless of the social consequences? You know, I, as a dad with, with um, four children now and youth sports, I am constantly reminded of the difficulty to both engage and allow them to play in in youth athletics, and yet at the same time, not allow that to consume the life and the time that God has given me in this world. And so my best effort is to leverage that time for the glory of God, to try to use it to engage lost people. But by all means, I am extremely sensitive to not allow that to overwhelm me so that my time with Christ is vanquished. Or that I prize that time, that competition, that accomplishment more than I would my love for Jesus. And the time and the the, uh, effort that I put into loving him and serving him. Because we could all agree that in the, the instance of sports or we could say politics or we could use a lot of different examples, but in the issue of sports, there is a social pressure that comes from that, right? If you live in this culture in the South, you feel a social pressure to do things and engage in things. My children pray recreation soccer. And there are people that turn their nose up to recreation soccer. Like, oh, your kids must really have never seen a soccer ball before if they're not in competitive soccer. No, my kids are actually very talented in soccer. But that's not the point. The point is, is that I don't want to miss Sundays to, to engage in such things. I want to be at, 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 the, the, uh, at uh, the gathering of God's people and worship them, not at a, a tournament on, on Saturdays and Sundays, taking up all my time, taking up my children's time, and promoting that other things are more important than gathering and worship the Lord Jesus. That's just where I am on it. So consider the devotion in your life. And notice in verse seven, Jesus says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Now, I don't believe that Mary had any inclination to anoint Jesus for his burial, I think that all these things did not come truly manifested to these people, the disciples and the close friends of Jesus, maybe even uh, Jesus' mother until his resurrection. But by all means, in the providence and sovereignty of God, we see the beauty where Mary is doing this thing out of worship and Jesus is saying she doesn't even understand what she's doing, but she is fulfilling my, uh, the, the foreshadowing of my burial of my death. Which is interesting because it not only foreshadows Jesus' death, but it foreshadows his burial. Because a week later, when Jesus is actually buried, he's taken off the cross, and you have Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two unlikely men, who come with the women and help prepare Jesus's body. They are secretly coming together as his disciples. They are coming together to honor the Lord Jesus at his burial. Well, we could say Mary beat him to the punch and she didn't even know it. But look at verse, um, look look if you can go back to Mark chapter 14 verse 9. I apologize, I should have told you to hold your place there, but nothing like the good ruffling of pages, right? Mark 14, verse nine, listen to how Mark concludes his account of this passage. Mark says, and truly I say to you, Jesus says this, "I truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Isn't that amazing? Like what act of devotion that literally stands the test of of human history so that we can remember the the devotion that Mary has for Jesus and be challenged by that. Not only the the act of devotion that points to the life of Christ and his sacrifice, but it challenges us in our own devotion. Devotion that we would so love Jesus that we would live unashamedly for him. You know, I was reminded at the funeral of David's father, the great opportunity that a, a funeral has for memorializing and commemorating the life of someone that loved the Lord. And so the question that I have for you this morning is how will your devotion to Jesus be memorialized when you pass on and go to be with him? When, they, when someone in your family or your friends or your neighbors stand to eulogize your life or speak good of you, how can they mention or what will they mention of your love and daily walk with Christ? Christ. So fulfillment in the Passover, fulfillment in the anointing, and lastly, fulfillment in this opposition. Judas Iscariot is one of the disciples we know. Obviously, they are writing this passage in this gospel after Judas has committed suicide. He's taken his own life. We could even say he regrettably took his own life. Not necessarily pointing to true faith in Jesus, but merely just, I think, moral sorrow and grief. Maybe he realized that his life would be memorialized as the great betrayer. (laughs) But it's Judas... The so called friend of Jesus, the false disciple of Jesus, the one who walked with him throughout his ministry, that objects to this act of worship. He practically objects to this act of worship. He's like, wait a minute, couldn't we be more benevolent with this money and give this money to the poor? which by the way, church, we can, we can disagree with certain methods and, and, and uh, manifestations or, or displays of worship and have really good practical reasons. But, but those methods of worship may be truly uh, worshipful. And maybe they just, deep inside, we, we have a, a disagreement about that because it just it infringes upon our selfishness or our uncomfortability. I would guess that in this church, some of you wanna raise your hands and worship, but you're afraid to raise your hands and worship because you don't wanna be a distraction to someone else. And so you're thinking about that while you're worshiping instead of worshiping. And then other people are not wanting to raise their hands and they're thinking about other people that raise their hands and everything's distracted because there's this, this pressure at times to not just fully express ourselves in worship and glorify the Lord Jesus for all the things that he's done. So let me encourage you that if you want to raise your hand, focus on Jesus, if you want to uh, obviously um, you know, praise him and, and glorify his name, then, then don't allow the hindrance of what you think people are going to think of you, but instead express yourself because of what Christ has done for you, And if the elders think that you're unruly or you're out of order, we'll just say something to you. Just being honest. If you're slinging chairs around for worship, you know, that's, we'll probably have to have a conversation. But guys, this is the family of God. This is the church. And we're to come together and we're to ex- express ourselves openly, honestly, intimately. Man, if you want to come and pray at the altar while Adam is singing, then why should we be prohibited from doing that? And the reason why is because of the social pressure. Or the, or the way that it makes us uncomfortable or the, the distraction that might be. Well, Judas was offended, not because he truly wanted to give to the poor. He was offended because he was a thief. And he saw that money as a great opportunity to profit himself. And John clearly helps us see that. So we take his comments with a grain of salt and we see merely that Judas represents the pure opposition to the gospel and the work of God in the world. It is amazing and true to understand that of the 12 disciples, one of them was in opposition to Jesus. That makes sense. It makes sense because there will always be Opposition to Christ in a sinful world. It makes sense. And it helps us as the church to see and be aware of false disciples and false converts. And there Judas is, serving as a reminder that the very opposition and rejection that Jesus faced on the earth represented the sin that he was going to die for. That's why Jesus was here, because there would be opposition. And why was there opposition? Because there will be sin. And that sin needed to be defeated, and there needed to be victory. And so Jesus came to slay the bondage of sin, to dominate that opposition, and to overcome it in every way, so that we might be free. So this story presents for us a fulfillment in reminding us that even in the life of Christ, the promised opposition that he faced, we also will face. In other words, in our inner circles, just as Jesus had one disciple that was his opponent, so you too may have opponents in your life because of Jesus. He told his people, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. In other words, you will have enemies. Why? Rejoice and be glad, he says, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. They speak evil against you or speak falsely on his account. On the name of Jesus' account. Because they hate him, they hate you. But the reason that 9, 10, and 11 was, were, are included in this sermon this morning is in the midst of that opposition, God's power is displayed and manifested in a greater way. In other words, they put Jesus on the cross, and they killed him, and he rose from the dead. And they killed the prophets, but they continued to have more prophets, and God's word continued to, to be manifested and revealed. And they took the church, and they persecuted the saints, and what happened? It continued to grow. Because you cannot stop the omnipotent power of God to carry out his... Uh, plans and purposes in this world through Jesus. And as we see in verses 9, this large crowd of Jews that learned that Jesus was in Bethany, they came, and they came from Jerusalem. Because see, when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead, he split. He left. He was out. And so people were, they were caught up in that miracle, but he was gone and nowhere to be found. And so now he's back in Bethany. And so the crowd that Jesus was traveling with, well, he, they, they didn't stop in Bethany. They kept going to Jerusalem, two miles away. Jesus stays in Bethany, has a meal well, guess what? The crowd goes and spreads the word. Hey, you guys remember Jesus rising Lazarus from the dead? He's back and he's in Bethany. And so this crowd now comes back, not only it says on the account of Jesus, but who? But on Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So it's like the paparazzi. It's like the they're like these, these stars of the culture. And, 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 and with that comes the great opposition, Because the chief priests were a part of that group. They're looking for Jesus. Jesus had like a warrant out for his arrest. And so as this crowd comes back to get a glimpse of Jesus and just maybe see him, kind of like Zacchaeus up in the tree, they just wanted to see him. They wanted to see this man that was raised from the dead. What's this guy look like? Is his flesh in place? Is his arms falling off? Like What does this look like? And in the midst of this, uh, I guess you could say, astonishment of of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and now being back in Bethany, came the opposition. And what was the opposition? That not only the chief priests are going to kill Jesus, but they're going to kill Lazarus too. Because that story and that miracle was not helping their cause at all to get rid of Jesus. Jesus. No, as a matter of fact, he gets the glory because people are believing in his name because of what happened to Lazarus being raised from the dead. So there you are. In the midst of the opposition, where we face similar opposition because of our love for Jesus, God is still going to get the glory. that the chief priests can plot all they want, they can kill Jesus all they want, and he's still going to get the glory because he's going to rise from the dead. And they can push and and put pressure on the church all they want, but Jesus is still going to get glory because the church is going to grow and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in your life, the animosity and the hatred and the difficulty that you face because of your love for Jesus and you face that persecution and you feel uh, oppressed and and, and the pressure's upon you. Maybe you feel isolated. Let me tell you that this church is a church full of, of people that are oppressed and persecuted and suffering and going through trials. And we come together each week and we worship Jesus because he got us through the previous week. And we're reminded of his power, we're reminded of his glory, and we know that he's coming again. And so we bond together like wounded soldiers in a, in a hospital tent in the middle of war, and we're, we understand what we've been through. And we remind each other that it's worth it, and that, 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 that there's a glory there for Jesus in our suffering, in our hate, in our persecution. And that we shouldn't lose heart, that we should rejoice because we're suffering as our Lord suffered. And so you might find that the story of Lazarus and this worn out for his arrest and their plans to kill him may be reflective of your own life. And here's why. Because Lazarus didn't choose to be raised from the dead. Jesus chose to raise him from the dead. And here Lazarus is sitting at a meal with Jesus with, a, with a, a death order on his head. He didn't choose that. But God chose him to manifest his glory and his sovereign purposes in the life of Lazarus. And a part of those sovereign purpose, purposes were suffering and trial and difficulty. And in the end, we see that, that God gets the glory. So let me close this morning with Romans chapter five. That as we sit here trusting in Christ and believing in him and his purposes and all that we've experienced because of our faith, and, and just as a disclaimer, we acknowledge that, that whatever suffering we have gone through does not compare and pale in comparison to our brothers and sisters in Nigeria or Sri Lanka or the Middle East. We don't, even, we don't even begin to fathom what it's like to come to church with fear of losing our lives. But also we reject the idea that persecution is only related to them and not to us because we all face it. Romans chapter five. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. And so church, be encouraged this morning, be challenged by the word, and may it live out in your life. Let's pray.